Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Like they were saying, um, before ooh, um, uh, before we do anything more, uh, will y'all just join me in praying? Jesus, I pray that tonight you would show us your cross more clearly than ever before. I pray that tonight uh, each and every person here would see you clearly, and I pray, Lord, as we leave from here, we would leave changed um, as we see you. God, I pray as we behold you, you would make us more like you. Pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to Crew, guys. Like I said, I'm Daniel. And uh, tonight we're continuing through our talk series. We're going through Exodus. And we've been going through Exodus kind of with this mentality. We are looking through the Old Testament, the first half of the Christian Bible, to see who God is in the new, in the second half. Um, in uh, Jesus's ministry, there was this thing, we, we, if you read John 5, you'll see he's talking with the Pharisees, and he explains to them uh, something that's really, really important. He says, if you want to know like, who I am, search the Old Testament. He says, if you want proof that I'm really God, search the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures were written thousands of years before Jesus came along, and he said, watch how I fulfill each and every one of these sacred scriptures that were written thousands of years before any of us were around. In fact, Peter, um, you can read about this in, in the letter of 1 Peter, Peter was Jesus' closest friend, and, uh, or first, John would probably debate that, um, one of his two closest friends, and his uh, first like, leader of his church after he left, right? So he was kind of his number one disciple. And Peter uh, actually died for his faith. Um, you can read about this in history books. Um, Peter was actually crucified just like Jesus. Um, for the first 200 years of Christian history, Christians were persecuted for their faith. To become a Christian meant that you were probably going to die, a brutal death, and Peter was no exception to that rule. And when he died, they actually hung him upside down. When they put, hung him on a cross, he actually hung upside down because he thought that hanging the way that Jesus went, he wasn't quite worthy of that. So as he hung upside down, they nailed him into this tree if you can imagine, the blood is rushing to his head. He's bleeding out. He knows he's about to die. And they asked him this one simple question, Peter, as he was dying. They said, will you recant? If you recant, we'll pull you out. And he said, I will be with my Lord soon. If you want evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, look no further than Peter. Now, when Peter was looking for evidence, though, of who Jesus was. He actually talks about this in his letters to the church in 1 Peter. He says, the greatest evidence, he starts talking about all the miraculous things he saw Jesus do. He says, I watched this man get up out the grave. That was pretty convincing. He said, I watched this man walk on water. I saw the heavens open and I heard the voice of God shake the earth and say, this is my son, follow him. He said, but more than all of that, the most convincing thing, he references that that conversation Jesus was having that's recorded in, in the book of John chapter five, where he's talking with those religious leaders. He says, 
the most convincing thing is that every single indicator that God gave us in our holy scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament of the Bible, was answered in Jesus. If you wanna know God, that means two things, guys. That means first and foremost, if you wanna know God, uh, for those of you, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wanna give you this invitation as we dive into Exodus and as we're starting to wrap up this series on Exodus, look through the Old Testament, look through some of these ancient scriptures. They happened thousands of years before Jesus was born, and yet they all point directly to him. You have to, this is an invitation for you to grapple with that. How did a man who was born thousands of years later after all these prophecies fulfill each and every one of them to the T? It's just something, it's an invitation to wrestle with. If you are a Christian, take your God's word seriously. You will never know Jesus if you don't know how he predicts and how he reflects and how he demonstrates himself in the Old Testament. You will never know the God of the New Testament. You will never know Jesus if you don't take the time to learn him in the Old Testament. This was Jesus' proclamation. It was Peter's proclamation. It's the proclamation we make to you today. So we're going through Exodus, right? Looking at the God of the Bible who is proclaimed in the New Testament as he shows himself and reveals who he is in the Old Testament. Um, tonight, we're gonna be going through the three cross, the three appeals of the cross in Exodus. There's actually a cross demonstration in Exodus. And if you're not a Christian, again, I know some of the people in this room might not be Christian. Some of y'all might have grown up your entire lives in a Christian context, but some of y'all might not. And, and if you hear Christians talk about the cross, the cross, the cross, it can be very, very confusing. And so real quick, I, I wanted to just, before we dive into this, I wanted to explain what Christians mean when we say the cross. When we say there's a cross in Exodus or three appeals or three demonstrations of Jesus' cross in Exodus, what do we actually mean? Um, well, that can be summed up in this thing we call the gospel. I don't have time to dive into this fully, but I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention it. Uh, the gospel is the core tenet. It's the heart of what all Christians believe. And, and if you had to summarize it briefly, it'd be summarized in these four points. If you hang around crew or crew people long enough, you will hear these points a lot. Um, first and foremost, God created you. Christians believe that God created you, created us, and he created you to know him and experience his love. You were made for a relationship with the God of the universe, the living, breathing God who is more real than you and me. Wrap your mind around that. That's why you were made. Uh, secondly, we broke that relationship. We left God, we went our own way, and we call that separation, Christians have a word for that separation, we call it sin. We are sinful, we're separated from God, and we could not get back to him. There was nothing in our own effort we could do to get back to him. God was not content with that, and so he sent Jesus, he came down, became a human, to say, this is who I am, this is how much I love you, and then he died on a cross. This is why Christians care about this so much. He died on a cross, which was an ancient Roman torture device. They'd take a tree, they'd chop off the top of it, they'd turn it sideways, and then they'd pin you to it. And you would suffocate and bleed slowly. It was known, and it is literally historically recorded as the most painful way to die. And this is how Christians believe our, our God died. And this is actually what Christians believe is the greatest work of our God was 
letting himself go to that cross and letting himself be killed by us for us. Because as he hung there dying, Jesus took all of our sin, all of that shame, all of that pain, all of that evil, the source of evil itself, sin, he took it on himself and took it to the grave with him. And then three days later, defeated death itself to say, this is who I am, this is how much I love you, and you can know me if you want. That is the gospel, that is the core of Christianity, and you cannot understand it without understanding the cross. It is the central great work of Christ. It's what makes us Christians. The belief that the God of the universe would rather die than go without you. And that he didn't just think that or feel that, he did it. That's what makes us Christians. And what's crazy, again, Jesus says this, search the scriptures, I'm there. There are three cross presentations in Exodus. And so tonight, as we look at the cross in Exodus, my prayer is that every single one of us, whether you've been a Christian culturally your entire life, or whether this is your first time, what, we, what you just heard with the gospel is the first time you've ever heard it, my prayer is that you would leave here with a clearer view of the cross than ever before. We're gonna see these three appeals God makes, these three prophetic moments where God says, hey, this is what the cross means. For the people in Exodus, he was saying, this is what the cross will mean. For us today, it's, this is what the cross means for all of you. Right, these three moments where he shows what it means clearly. Um, it should come as no surprise, if you wanna communicate a message, some of you guys are comm majors, right? Can I get a, how many comm majors here? Woo! Yeah, okay, there we go, okay, oh, okay, one up there. Okay, there's a couple in here, okay, cool. All right, um, sorry, I was making a, there's a bad joke in my head. Um, okay, uh, some of your comm majors, you guys know this. Um, if you want to make an appeal to people, if you ever wanna uh, appeal or make a really good argument, there's three things you have to appeal to. Logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos meaning logic or intellect. Pathos, your feelings, they've gotta feel it. There's gotta be emotion and a heart behind it. And ethos means ethics or morality or, or the soul. There's gotta be a conviction when you make an appeal. So it should come as no surprise that when God wants to show an appeal and clarify what the cross really means to his people in Exodus, he does it three times in an appeal to logos, an appeal to pathos, and an appeal to ethos. So we're gonna see these three appeals, the three crosses of Exodus. Um, the first one, like I said, is an appeal to logos. We're gonna be in Exodus chapter 31, and we're starting in the first verse. Exodus chapter 31. There we go, there we go, the Bible is flipping, okay. It's also gonna be on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, see, I've called by name Bazalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the spirit of God, with the ability and the intelligence, with the knowledge and the craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. Some of your translations will say every art. And behold, I've appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamech, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to him uh, I've given to them both the ability, or some translations will say all of them, uh, that I've commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant, and the mercy seat, or the throne that's on it. And all the furnishings of the tent. The table, its utensils, the pure lampstands. 
I know this is really riveting, guys. Hold on with me. Um, Lamp stands with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, the basin, the stand, finely worked garments, holy garments for the priests and Aaron and his sons for the service as priests and the anointing oil, the fragrant incense of the holy place. According to all I've commanded you, they will make it. Okay, I know that was like the most riveting passage of scripture y'all have ever, ever read. Um, But seriously, actually, there's something really incredible going on here. This is the creation of what is, for the Jewish people, the center of all their worship. From the moment this is made until literally Jesus dies on the cross, this is the center of the worship for the people of God. This is the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Now, we talked about this uh, a little bit uh, a couple years, or the years, a couple weeks ago, Ooh, I'm losing my mind, guys. Um, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Noah, and we said this. The word ark in Hebrew literally just means box or container. So they create a container. That's a, a container for their covenant, right? And, and what that basically means, uh, guys, what's going on here, uh, God kind of points out these two guys, Bezalel and Aholiab, what a name, um, and he basically inspires them and he says, I want you guys to craft this container and what's gonna be contained within it is the ethnic and spiritual identity of the Jewish people. So they craft this box or this container of this really precious wood. Different translations will translate it differently because we don't know, there's no actual wood in existence. It's out of existence, right? But they take their most precious wood and they form this gorgeous box and inlaid all throughout it are all these symbols of what it means to be a Jew, of what it means to be a part of God's people. And they carve it out really carefully and then they pour gold and silver and bronze all over it and they make it beautiful. And again, in the gold, they carve all of these different symbols, all communicating this is what it means, this is our identity as Jewish people, and then when they finish setting the box, they open it up and they put these three artifacts, we don't have time to dive into them, but these three ancient Jewish artifacts, again, that all to the Jews represented the core most of what it meant to be them. And the whole point of creating this ark, this container, was saying this is the physical representation of our identity. This is who we are, and what the ark represented to the people of God was literally what it meant to be a Jew, what it meant to be God's people. It was contained within this container, this box, this ark. And on top of it, as you, as you hear God talk about what he wants this ark to be constructed, he says, construct the ark and make it beautiful. Construct this symbol of your identity, but then on top of it, I want you to put a mercy seat. And that really confuses us. Uh, The word mercy seat in ancient Hebrew could also be translated as throne. What God is saying is this, hey, I want you to create a symbol of your identity and then that's where I'm going to rest. In the ancient world, the reason they called thrones mercy seats was if you needed something from a king or a ruler, if you were desperate, you would go before the mercy seat And that's what you would ask for. You would ask the king for help. And however much access you had to that mercy seat was the level of access you had to the king that was going to fix your problems. What God is saying is this. Hey, first and foremost, 
I'm the one who holds your identity. He says, hey, I'm the one who holds your identity. Come to me. And in the end of that passage, you see them talking about constructing all these lamps. And you're like, why construct all these lamps? Right? Why construct all these lamps? And it talks about oil. And it's like, why is that important? It's because they always had it lit up. The lights never went out before God's mercy seat. What he was saying was this, doesn't matter the hour, come to me. Doesn't matter the circumstance, come to me. Whenever you need me, come to me. I'm right here and I'm holding your identity. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know why you are, if you wanna know who holds the answer to why you were born and who you were born to be, come right here, I'm always available. It's the center of all of God's people for over, for thousands of years. For over 2,000 years, this was the message God was saying, hey, I hold your identities and you can come to me whenever with anything. And not only that, but they actually place, they talk about this in Numbers chapter two, they place the Ark of the Covenant, when I said it's the center of Jewish life and worship, it was literally placed at the center of Jewish life. When they camped, some of you guys have been with us the last couple weeks, some of you might not, uh, at this time in, in the people of God's history, they were literally sojourners. They were traveling. They didn't stay more, more in a single place for more than like a week, right? If you can imagine, you're traveling all the time, you're traveling all the time. At all times, the formation of the Israelites, you can read about this again in Numbers chapter two, had the Ark of the Covenant at the very center. The Ark of the Covenant was at the center of this thing they called the tabernacle, which was like this tent that would stay at the center of all of the people of God's tent, and they would organize their entire life keeping the tabernacle at the center. And what God was saying was this, I am here for all of you at all times. If you wanna know who you are, if you wanna know who you were born to be, just come. If you need help, come to me. Now, some of y'all are like, okay, but I thought this was a crosstalk. Where's the cross? Well, again, if you read Numbers chapter two, it might explain it. There's actually, uh, well, let me just show you the visual. This is what Numbers two actually describes the camp looked like. Yeah, okay, now here's the crazy thing. This is a modern interpretation of how God calls them to organize the camp. Uh, what that is is north, south, east, west, but the Jewish people in the ancient world thought in terms of sunrise and sunset, not north and south. Let me show you what they thought of when they thought of God's mercy seat. More than 2,000 years before Jesus ever went to the cross, he was saying, come into my cross, I hold your identity. Come to the cross, I hold your identity. Come to me, the lights are always on. Come to me. And here's the crazy thing, if you know this organization, um, you'll see that all the different camps, it's kinda hard to see it, and they don't or organize all 12 of them, they don't mention them in this visual. Um, but what's basically going on here is again, all of these different tribes are given equal access to the mercy seat at all times. That's crazy, because the last thing that Israel, the guy who was actually like the founder of this nation did, he gave each and every one of these tribes a blessing or an identity. And it was based on how the founder of their tribes had acted during his lifetime. Some of them were really blessed. Like Judah, he tells these guys, Judah, who are, see these, they're the, they're the biggest, so they're, they form this bottom. Um, 
He tells the Judans, hey, the scepter is never going to depart from y'all. Y'all are always going to rule. Pretty awesome. Uh, he tells Ephraim up top, you guys are always going to be rolling in the dough. You guys are always going to be wealthy. You're always going to be successful. Benjamin, that's right below Ephraim, he says, you guys are always going to be elite. But then there's others, the tribe of Reuben, he says, you guys are always going to serve because you were failures. He says to some of them, y'all are violent and cruel, and I've got nothing for you. And you know what's crazy? If you actually read these founders in their lives, they deserved every blessing they got. The ones who got the good blessings were awesome, and the ones who got the bad blessings were terrible. And yet, God, when he organizes the camp, it's not a totem pole. It's a cross with him at the center, giving equal access to everyone. And what God is telling them with the creation of this ark, he's telling them these three things. Again, I hold your identity. If you want to know who you were born to be, if you want to know why you exist, come to the cross. I'm the mercy seat. I'm always here. Right? And he's also telling them this. Hey, the world and even your father, your mother, the people who give you identity, they've told you all these different identifiers and they put you in these places. Some of you high, some of you low but all of you belong in me. This is the cross of Exodus. This is the first cross of Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant, but there's two more. We're gonna be in Exodus chapter 15. We're bouncing around today, y'all. The second one is in Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22. It's gonna be on the screen again. Uh, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah. Marah means bitterness or, or gross or filth in Hebrew. So the people grumbled against Moses. They said, what shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Some translations just say a big piece of wood. So Moses threw the piece of wood into the water, and the water instantly was made sweet. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule there, or a standard. He said, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in my eyes and give ear to my commands and keep all my statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I'm the Lord, your healer. I'm the Lord, your healer. Okay, let me break this down, the story of Mara. Uh, the people of Israel are going through the desert. They've just come out the Red Sea. The Red Sea's at their back, so it's salty. If you can imagine, if most of y'all have been to the beach before, you know what it's like. It literally just makes you thirsty because there's so much salt in the atmosphere. That's at their backs blowing on them. In their front is the desert of the Middle East, of central Judea. It is hot. It is brutal. And everything about this is making them thirsty. And for three days they find no water. Can you imagine? They start to get desperate. And in the middle of their desperation... They finally find this pool, and they're so excited. They all start to gobble it down. They start to try and chug it, and it's mara. It's bitter and filthy. It's not even really water. Y'all, I had this one time uh, when I was a senior in college. It was 4th of July. My family was moving houses, and so I spent the whole day, you know, I was 
gross and sweaty, moving stuff in the middle of the Athens sun in the middle of summer, and I was gross. And my friends called me up and were like, hey, there's a 4th of July thing. You want to come to the event? I was like, yeah, sure. So I'm like trying to get ready for this and trying to, and I see this water bottle on the counter. As we're uh, trying to, you know, I'm trying to run out the door. So I grab it, and I just start chugging. It had been filled with gel that we were using to clean some furniture. Yeah. And within two gulps, just the taste hit me, and the taste alone just made me start to spin. I ran to the bathroom, and it all came back up. I had been thirsty. It was so much worse. Okay, not only that, but the, the, the taste was in my mouth for like a good 24, 48 hours. I, like, I almost couldn't hold anything down. All that thirst got so much worse. This is what happens. If you can imagine, three days, no water, in the desert, it's salty, it's exhausting. They start drinking, and it's worse, because the water is bitter. And in the midst of these bitter waters, they cry out in desperation, what's God going to do? And God gives this solution to Moses. He says, hey, Moses, no worries. Take a big piece of wood, throw it into the water with my blessing. Watch what happens. And as they throw this wood into the bitterness of the waters, all the gross, all the filth, all the bitter just gets absorbed. It all gets absorbed on the wood of that cross. Just like a couple thousand years later. God is really awesome. He always likes to switch it up, but he also doesn't change. His method's always the same. Some of y'all are in a season of Mara, a season of bitterness. You have things going on, anxieties, fear, pain, confusion, and you are desperate. And you have tried, and the water of your life just keeps tasting bitter, and the more you drink it, the worse it gets. Hear this. On the cross, he absorbed it all. And at the end of this, catch this, guys, at the end of the Mara, he tells them this, I am Yahweh Rofi. I am the Lord, your healer. We talked about that name Yahweh before, a couple weeks ago. It literally means I am existence. I am transcendence. I am beyond. He's saying this, I am healing itself. Come to the cross. He is healing. We'll wrap it up with one more appeal. We're in Exodus chapter 17. God's not done making this clear to them. Chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin. Oh, they're going through sin. Interesting. Um, by stages, according to the commandment, of the Lord, they camped at this place called Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled, or they fought with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test, or why are you quarreling, really, with the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, why do you bring us out of Egypt just to kill our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what will I do with this people? Let me give you guys some context. When they're complaining against Moses, they're not just complaining against Moses, they're really complaining against God. Moses is God's representative. So really, 
They're not just like complaining to God or to Moses when they say, we're gonna stone you, we're gonna kill you. What they're really saying is, we want to fight God. We have a problem with God. And Moses is freaking out because he's just watched this same God who he knows is perfect and righteous. If they take God to court, he knows what's going to happen. God's gonna be right. And he's just watched this same God destroy the Egyptians, the most powerful nation in all the world, just to prove a point, God broke it to pieces. And Moses is literally thinking, oh, literally, oh my God, he's going to kill us. They want to take God to court. We're going to take God to court. He's going to prove us wrong, and then he's going to wreck us. And Moses is having a crisis, realizing if we do this, they might all die. What happens when you bring God to court when you're angry at him? But God said to Moses, pass on before the people. Take some of the elders, take your hand the staff, take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go, behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. It says at the end, and he called this place Meribah, which means a court session. This place is where they take God to court. Uh, in the ancient world, if you were on trial, you'd stand above everyone and then you'd make your presentation and they would judge you based on your presentation. Uh-oh. Um, kind of there now. Um, all right, but you'd stand up here and you'd make your presentation and as soon as you said something wrong or as soon as you did something wrong, they would strike you. And that symbolically meant this, we're putting all the shame on you and whatever the situation, whether you were actually innocent or guilty, you're going to take all the blame, you're gonna take all the pain and then physically, literally, they would hit you. They would hurt you potentially even stone you and kill you to prove the point. You take all the pain, you take all the shame, you take all the cost of this situation. And what God literally tells Moses, hey, solution to the problem, the people are angry, they're angry at me. And again, Moses is like, but you're good. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, and you're powerful. Yeah, I know. You might destroy them. He's like, I could, but just take me to court and see what happens. Moses is terrified. But when God gets up on the rock and they strike him, the rock splits and this river gushes out. They strike God, they accuse God, they put all the pain and all the shame and all the evil of the situation on God. And his response is to give them life. Sound familiar? As Jesus innocently lay dying 2,000 years ago. He said, two, he said one thing and then one thing happened to him. He said, it's finished. And then the, the place of that tabernacle, it was made of this single knit woven like fabric. It ripped from top to bottom. And symbolically, God was saying, hey, there is no more separation. You have life in me. And then they pierced his side after he died and water flowed out. 2,000 years before the cross, Jesus was saying, this is who I am and this is what I do for you. 
Some of y'all are Mirabah with God right now. Some of y'all are quarreling with him. Some of y'all are angry, and you're asking literally the same question the Israelites were asking. Why have you brought me here? Why am I going through this? Why did this happen? God's response is very simple. Put it on me. I took it 2,000 years ago. I can take it again. Here's the catch. When you strike him, life comes out. That's the cross of Meribah. We hate God, and he loves us enough to give us life anyway. And these are the crosses of Exodus, the cross of the ark. He holds your identity, and no matter where they put you on the totem pole, he invites you in at all times. Come to the cross. He'll show you who you were born to be. This is the cross of Mara. Are you bitter? Does it taste terrible? Come to his cross. He absorbs it all and makes it sweet. If you are desperate, let him heal you. He is healing. This is the cross of Mirabah. Are you angry? Are you quarreling with him? Come to him. Be honest with him. Be raw with him. Pierce him. He did it once. He did it again. And he'll do it again and again and again and again and pour out life after life after life till you realize no matter how much you hate him, he loves you enough to die for you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray for each and every one of these students, God, with whatever they are going through. Lord, I pray for those who feel left out. God, show them your acceptance, just like you did for your people in Exodus. God, I pray for those who are bitter. I pray for healing in the name of Jesus. I pray that they would come to your cross and find healing. I pray tonight, Lord, for those who are quarreling with you. Lord, I pray that they would look upon the one that they pierced and see you've given them life. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.